Hello everyone, it's Joanna, and welcome to Sam Magazine. Today's story, it is titled The Torch Man's Tale, and it is from the science fiction genre. Now, it definitely has a Halloween vibe to it, yet it's neither horror nor fantasy. First, I want to share a little bit about the science fiction author of this story well-known author. He has been writing for decades, and that is Edward M. Lerner. Um, I'm just going to share some of Edward's thoughts through his writing career, okay? So one of the common topics when people first meet Edward is they ask, what does he do? And uh, he tells them he's an author, and uh, Usually the next question then is, well, which of your books should I try? And Edward finds this a very difficult question. That, well, he, and he's written so many. And he says, this is like asking, which is your favorite child? So not, not really quite, you know, quite like that, even though, and I do agree with him, the gestation period is often comparable, okay? His interests are eclectic, and so is his authoring. And that's why he finds it really difficult to say, you know, which book someone should read. Uh, they're all very different. And like he says here, um, should I suggest a near future Earth-centric techno-thriller? A far future deep space adventure? A science fictional mystery? something with time travel? How about alien invasion? Artificial intelligence? Nanotech? So, you know, he's, he's covered a lot of uh, material. He says he has written at least one novel of each of those types. So whenever people ask him that question, he, he finds himself tongue-tied. And then this book came out, this anthology, and it's the best of Edward M. Lerner, which pretty much sums up his interests and what his storytelling is alike. Now, a little bit about Edward. Okay, so um, in his bio on Edward's website, it is written, Edward is the perpetrator of science fiction and techno thrillers. Well, you probably know Ed from his science fiction novels, including the Interstellar Net series, 
and the Epic Fleet of World series with Larry Niven, Ed is a prolific author of acclaimed short fiction. The best of Edward M. Lerner showcases his finest and favorite shorter works. Edward is a physicist and computer scientist. After 30 years in the industry, working at every level from individual technical contributor to senior vice president, he now writes full-time. In addition to science fiction and techno-thrillers, he also writes popular science, notably including Tropink, The Light Fantastic, The Science Behind the Fiction. Edward is the recipient of the Canopus Award, a Hugo finalist for Best Novelette, Champion Vitok, Fate of Worlds, with Larry Niven, was a Locus Award finalist, and many more. So that's just going off his bio. Edward says, so what determines the best? Because these stories, they don't have like official rankings. So to select stories for this collection, he gave weight to awards and award nominations, editorial interest, which usually mirrors reader interest, reviews, reader feedback, republications in new markets, and to a minor degree, his, and he says purely objective, of course, his opinion. So which book does he recommend to anyone expressing curiosity about his writing? It is the best of Edward M. Lerner. And on that note, we will start with reading from that anthology, The Torch Man's Tale. It was, according to the calendar, All Hallows' Eve. Trick or treat, costumes and revelry, jack-o'-lanterns, crisp weather, the chill at the least we had. Outside, the temperature almost reached 60 degrees. Calvin. With a sun no more than a bright star in the sky, the hour on the clock seemed as irrelevant as the calendar. Gripping a sodden rag, I chased slop and spills around the bar. Not that any of the hard-drinking spacers who frequented the saloon would care. I cared. It was the curse of owning the place. The snowball I had come to call home offered but 3% of a standard gravity, and to collect rather than scatter the mess took, if not skill, at least attention to detail. Focused on my task, not looking up, I said to the approaching of clanking footsteps, we don't serve your kind. Because what would a robot imbibe anyway? Who wanted to drink even cheap beer or rot gut around the smell of 5W40? And I say this, no sarcasm intended, despite the fact that some of my best friends are bots. My kind? You mean ghosts? Today of all days, you should make an exception. Beneath 
that flat, synthesized voice, I intuited humor. But lifting my gaze, I saw only a cheap robot. Not quite a meter and a half tall, tarnished from boxy head to toeless foot, socketed wrists for interchangeable tools and hands. Boo, it said. That hardly sounded like a bot. A mobile then. Only I had yet to meet an upload, mobile or otherwise, with any more sense of humor than a bot. I wondered if maybe the transfer process had been improved recently, had started retaining a bit more of the original's personality. Barring some horrible accident, I was a couple dec decades removed from needing to study the matter. What can I do for you? It projected a hollow over the bar. Do you recognize him? I looked. It wasn't even a proper picture, but rather a rendering of the sort COP software interpolates from witness descriptions. A guy in a plain jumpsuit, dark hair, dark eyes, bland expression. Setting aside the heavy, almost biblical black beard, ordinary looking. No, I said, that doesn't mean much. Lots of folks pass through here. Look closer, it urged. I looked, I shrugged. It projected a few more images, removing the beard, fleshing out the face, aging him. I shrugged again. If the job were open, this guy could be the poster child for nondescript. The hollow changed once more, this time offering an actual camera image. The torch ship, at rest upon some fearless icy plain, wasn't quite a museum piece in the same league as a Conestoga wagon. Hey, I'd been to Earth back when I was young and could bear that hellish gravity. The damned ungainly vessels were too cheap and, with lots of labor-intensive maintenance, too reliable ever to go entirely out of service. Still, for at least a century, no one with an extra solar to his name would fly in one, apart from, perhaps, a unique pie-bald arrangement to its collection of replacement hull segments. Nothing distinguished this space scow from any of its antique kind. I don't believe so, I said. I haven't seen a torch ship in years, but I'm a homebody. Thanks anyway. It clanked off to speak with that morning's meager clientele. Two regulars and two spacers I'd not laid eyes on before that day. Those inquiries appeared to yield no more useful result than it had had with me. So it goes, the bot clanked back to the bar, the clatter reminding me of something. A whiskey, please. I tucked away the rag. No offense, but why? None taken, it synthesized, what might have been a laugh. Things aren't always what they seem. Studying the metal body before me, I noticed, just above the base of its neck, a little brass grommet 
securing a slitted rubber diaphragm. That intake appeared compatible with the nipple of a drink bulb. And therein hangs a tail? Long and sad, the bot agreed. And for a bulb of your finest, you'll have it. As I filled a drink bulb, still wondering what a bot could want with liquor, the stranger began. This all started, it paused dramatically, and for a long sip through the cervical intake I'd just spotted, many years ago. It? No, he, I decided, with no more basis for that identification than turns of phrase. Certainly he never offered a name, and I never asked. Even among the regulars, I disbelieved many of the names I'd been given. Lots of people come to the dark to hide. My business was to offer drinks and an ear to those who needed one, not to judge. For my time, he amplified, early in the migrations. I won't bore you with a particular hearsay my people embraced, because that doesn't in any way impact the story. I've come to understand it's not even all that heretical anymore, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, my ancestors left Earth on a handful of ships like this. Once again, he flashed the image of a time-worn torch ship. But new at the time, we settled on a world bigger than Mars, deep within the cloud. The cloud. By comparison, this ice ball, the entire Kuiper belt, was in the solar tropics. The cloud had exactly nothing to offer that the belt didn't, apart from yet more yawning void between worlds. Only the most extreme of the extreme ever settled in the cloud. Back in the day, these folks must have been really unpopular or antisocial. Maybe both. I judged the time had come for an encouraging comment. Go on. He saluted me with the bulb, a very human gesture. We got our privacy, all right, and the opportunity to live free of condemnation and harassment. If the rest of the solar system forgot we had ever existed, and as it turns out, it has, so much the better. Time passed, for a while we prospered. The merest fraction of the water ice of our new world provided enough detrium to power our fusion reactors for many millennia. The rocky parts furnished enough ores of enough kinds for anything we would care to print. The glancing blow of another cloud object in some unknowably distant past had left behind a huge mass of carbonaceous material for whatever organics we might ever want to synth. Sounds idyllic. Mentally, I added, in a reclusive sort of way. I'm told it was, until it wasn't. Our world turned out to have far less in the way of several rare earth elements than the founders had estimated. He paused for another sip. 
ever hear of Easter Island? I shook my head. Well, neither had we. I learned about it after I left. From a table in the corner where conversation had stopped, one of my regulars piped up. Middle of some earth ocean, place with big stone heads. That's the one, our metallic visitor agreed. Except that situation is a lot stranger and sadder than some enigmatic statues. People came to the island aboard big log boats. It must have been some kind of paradise when they found it, and the population grew and grew until it crashed. They'd exhausted some of the critical resources, including trees, I guessed. Indeed, they were stranded. He held out his drink bulb. Our arrangement, such as it was, had been for just the one serving, but I was sufficiently intrigued not to quibble. I refilled the bulb and gave it back. Rare earth elements, I prompted. Used in superconducting magnets, needed for fusion reactors. He raised a metallic hand in another very human-seeming gesture. Yeah, yeah, modern superconductors don't use rare earths. And modern fusion reactors don't require superconductors. We didn't have that tech. In the course of his narration, one of the regulars had sidled up to the bar. So you looked elsewhere. I assume that's what you did. No more trees, I guess. I mean, no more ships. The stranger nodded. Minutes earlier, the hinge-like motion, all that that cheap robotic body could manage would have seemed appropriate. No matter that I had yet to understand, the gesture now was simply wrong. Ship's reactors had been used to bootstrap the colony. As the population grew, and as the old re reactors required more and more maintenance, we found ourselves running low of those absolutely critical rare earth elements. Conservation measures sufficed for a while. Eventually, we had to scavenge some reactors for parts and materials to keep others running. Once power rationing began, there was no denying that our long-cherished isolation was a mixed blessing. We'd kept one ship intact for emergencies, our smallest vessel operable with a two-person crew. Of course, now that an emergency had come around, time and neglect had rendered that ship unusable. We got it fixed up, scavenging what we could from the reactorless hulks. Fortunately, those hadn't yet been completely recycled and printing everything else. Filling its tanks damn near depleted our detrium reserves. And here is where we depart history and begin my story. Someone needed to ride along in case the fusion drive needed maintenance. I'm a reactor engineer, as close to a torchman as any of us got, and I volunteered. I said, 
I'll guess you didn't find what you needed. And you're right. With a fleet of ships, an army of planetary geologists, and more time to search than we could spare, maybe the outcome would have been different. Maybe. Instead, as power rationing became severe, the decision was made to buy supplies from the, well, let's just say our culture had become insular and our term for anyone in system was less than flattering. No matter that our world lacked rare earth elements, we had noble metals, and in particular, palladium and gold in abundance. Someone snorted. Why wouldn't you? Those are common enough all over, inner and outer belts. Which is one of the ironies, our storyteller said. But again, that's getting ahead of events. So, two of us volunteered to make the long voyage in system, as captain and navigator, illustrated with the momentary reappearance of the rendering. George, though I know he's changed names at least once since, as engineer, as you will have guessed, myself. So, okay, one of my newcomers said, the bearded guy is George, and you are screwed, at which everyone laughed. I'm incapable of going longer than a few minutes without wiping down the bar, for no better reason than habit. I started polishing. Sounds like a lot of responsibility to put on just two people. True, and especially so in hindsight. But the fewer people aboard, the less strain on a temperamental and deteriorating life support system. He offered his bulb for yet another refill, and I obliged. Early in the flight, still deep within the cloud, George began, well, I don't know what, rhapsodizing, fantasizing, obsessing about what life must be like on Earth. I must admit, George got me to wondering the more so as our long, tedious voyage continued. How can't a person find some appeal in a world where a careless moment won't necessarily be fatal? Where land and sea and sky teem with life forms beyond counting? Where the ocean, mother of us all, laps white sand beaches under a warm sun? Evidently, he saw the incongruity of his questions, too, for he emitted another mechanical-sounding synth laugh. What use have I now for sun and sand? Anyway, George finally confessed to his plan. He had no intention of returning to our world. The colony, he argued, was doomed. Returning with a few supplies, would only prolong the dying. How would it benefit anyone for the two of us to perish with them? Why shouldn't we take the wealth aboard 
and use it to make new lives for ourselves. Why not bask in the sun on some secluded beach? I was shocked, horrified, aghast, and the scariest of all, I was tempted. Still, I said no. Of course, I said no. I reminded him that every man, woman, and child at home was relying on us. I said that we had a duty to do as we'd promised. He relented after a heated argument, and I considered the matter settled. George prepped dinner for us both in the ship's tiny galley. I ate. As my mind churned, reliving the quarrel, I was pleasantly surprised to catch myself yawning. Soon after, I fell asleep. I woke in a life pod, adrift in space. Why hadn't he killed me outright? I don't know. Easier on his conscience, I suppose, because he could always tell himself I'd be rescued. By now, everyone, including some strangers and another three regulars, newly arrived, had abandoned all pretense of disinterest and sidled up to the bar. Our storyteller, having once again fallen silent, one of the gang gestured she'd buy not only his refill, but a round for the house. I still didn't understand why a robot, even though he somehow wasn't a robot, wanted or could use booze, and evidently that perplexity was written on my face. We're coming to the why, the stranger said, saluting me and his benefactress with a refilled bulb. There I was, awakening out of a stupor, just in time to die alone in the dark. I was barely functional enough to understand George had drugged me, and too muddled to work out whether I'd freeze or suffocate first, and it was already damn cold. Bastard, one of the crowd muttered. And yet, the stranger continued, however accidentally, George's choice saved me. The drugs in my system, whatever the hell it was he had sent, and the cold, and hypoxia, Together, somehow, they put me into a hibernating state before any one thing could kill me outright. And so, in a loose manner of speaking, I was alive as my pod coasted sunward. Sometime later, a freighter in the inner cloud spotted the life pod, picked me up. Luckily, the weather of the good or ill variety is open to debate. That crew had the sense to leave me undisturbed in the deep freeze till they got to a settled rock. How long? asked the woman who bought the round. The stranger dipped a shoulder. I don't doubt this was the nearest that metallic body could come to the sideways cant of a head in thought. How long was I adrift? I have no idea. My people had abandoned the traditional calendar along with everything else they'd left behind. 
but surely months and more likely years, my brain was, loosely speaking, intact, but several other organs were too damaged to save. The doctors who revived me offered two choices. They could upload my mind, which they strongly advised, or they could install my brain inside a robotic shell. They didn't have many bots on hand to choose from, and I didn't have long to decide. Even with massive life support, my body was shutting down. Uploading is familiar to you, but to me, that technology was new and terrifying. I knew that I'd lost some memories. How many more would be lost if the process worked at all? Copying from a frost-damaged brain? And how many more could I lose and still be me? Because I had to stay me. I had to retain what memories I could because I had to catch up with George. For revenge, I said, and the crowd growled its assent. That too, the stranger said, but vengeance is the least of it. Just maybe the people I left behind have managed to hold on. Just maybe I can yet save them by returning with a reactor or two and a wikiful of modern technology. But only if I can find George, because chief among my lost memories is where and all the vast cloud is home. As always, more and more people had wandered into the saloon as the lunch hour approached. A grizzled spacer I didn't recognize, arriving near the end of that sad narration, whispered urgently with one of my regulars. The newcomer nodded along with the retelling, then called out, can I see the image of your torch ship? Of course. Hmm. The newcomer slowly circled the hollow, parting the crowd like Moses at the Red Sea. Yes, yes, I've seen it somewhere. Frowning, tattooed arms folded across his barrel-like chest. He at last summoned up. On Triton? Pluto? No, somewhere farther out. It was Maki Maki, two years ago, if it was a day. Standard. Of course, standard years. No person alive, not even upload, had seen Maki Maki or any caper belt object make a full circuit around the sun. Maki Maki's year was more than 300 standard. Two years our tale-teller echoed. His torso held up one bed output, and he switched the projection to George. And him? Possibly I saw your guy, without the beard, the newcomer said doubtfully. A beer, he added to me. Where was the ship going next? The newcomer shrugged. Can't say. I don't believe I ever knew. 
I just saw it in port. I filled and handed off a bulb. There's something I don't understand. You say George stole the ship to go to Earth. Why keep looking out here? And here's where the irony kicks in. The metal man had another nip of whiskey, then returned the bulb to me. How much booze till a voice synthesizer slurs its speech? Wrong question, obviously. How little booze does it take to pickle it a disembodied brain without a body to soak up most of the alcohol? I said, maybe that's enough for a while. He favored us with another awkward robotic shrug. I haven't consumed a tenth of it. It's mostly in a reservoir for later. I'm still human enough to worry where my next drink will come from and that it not be a glucose solution. A few bulbfuls were a modest enough recompense for this story. I gave him another refill. Now about George, an irony? Remember our precious cargo? A load of, as it turned out, all but worthless metal? And George's knowledge of navigation, or of anything else for that matter, is as hopelessly obsolete as mine of reactor technology. Far from buying an island like he wanted, he was broke and unequipped for any but the most menial earth jobs. His one useful skill was flying our torch ship. So that's what he's been doing, hauling freight, and anyone who'd hire such an old tub isn't exactly paying top solar for the service. Meanwhile, anyone he can find to keep a torch ship flying can charge pretty much whatever George has managed to accumulate. It'll be a long while, if ever, before he can afford Earth. And with that, we seem to have reached the saga's inconclusive conclusion. Along the bar, in twos and threes, conversations began. Other people wandered off to tables, our storyteller decanted his latest bulb, synth a sigh, and gave me the empty. He turned toward the door. Wait, I called after him. Where will you go? What will you do? What I've done for nearly ten years, on every rock and snowball I reach. I'll stop into every watering hole and greasy spoon every flop house and whorehouse that spacers and dockhands frequent. I'll ask my questions. I'll tell my tale over and over. That's how I first discovered George had left the cloud, made his way into the belt, and changed his name. And if I don't learn anything newer than what I just heard, then I'll work my way somehow to Makimaki. Someone there will know where George was headed. Mark my words, someday I will find him. Someday.
I'll beat out of him the orbital parameters of our home world, and I'll lead back a relief mission. Somehow. With magnetized feet clanking, he started to go. The caper belt is huge, I said. The odds of you catching up are astronomical. True enough, but no longer than the odds of me surviving in that life pod and being rescued. He gestured at his metal body, of me turning into a pumpkin. He made his way to the exit, turned left into the corridor, vanished from view. For the longest while, I listened to the soft clatter of footsteps, like the jangling chains of a ghost, as they receded. When that spectral rattle was lost in the distance, I dug out a dry rag and resumed polishing the bar. That's it, folks. I really like that short story. Ed has mentioned that this short story is one of his personal favorites. And I think it's one of my favorites. And it is one that has also gathered a fair share of favorable reader feedback. Um, Ed Conley just mentions here that sometimes he wonders if maybe it's the chocoholic in him responding to the Halloween theme. In any event, The Torch Man's Tale is just one of 14 entries and one of the shortest in his collection, The Best of Edward M. Lerner. For more about this collection or any of Ed's many titles, including the newly published novel, on the Shoals of Space-Time. His website is edwardmlearner.com. You can also find him on Facebook, LinkedIn, Goodreads, and Amazon as Edward M. Lerner. I will have a link to his website in the show notes. And also, if you'd like to learn even more about Edward, check my interview with him. It's on the Sam Magazine website. So sam-magazine.com. And I have a link. Um, It's on the menu, Sam's Podcast. And it is episode 117. All right. Thanks for joining me. Have a good week. And tune in next week because I will have another short story to read. Okay, folks. Bye-bye.